All right, our scripture for this afternoon is from the Gospel according to John. We're at chapter 12, verses 27 to 36, just the first half of 36. Uh, And you can find that on page 899 in those pew Bibles. So John 12, beginning at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of God. Have a seat. Let's pray before we come to this passage. Father in heaven, at every moment um, throughout this service, um, the nature of worship is that we are responding to your goodness to us, uh, that you have taken the first move in, in calling us a people and in calling us together and, and at every point uh, in this service. Um, the same is true here, uh, as we have heard your word read. It is amazing to us, and, and we, we don't want to take it for granted, we don't want to stop um, expressing our gratitude, that you are a God who is not silent, that you are a God who has not left us to wonder who you are, uh, to wonder what you are like, but that you have revealed yourself, uh, that you have revealed yourself in the person of your son, Jesus, and that you have revealed yourself in this word um, that tells us of him, and that in this case records his very words, and that, and that even in, in this passage takes us into the heart of the triune God the God that we worship, three and one, one and three. Um, this is a great mystery. Um, this, is, this, is, this is deep stuff uh, that, we are, that we are looking at in this passage. Um, we would be lost had your spirit not inspired these words, and we would be equally lost, Holy Spirit, if you were not here uh, with us now. Uh, we have already invoked your presence. Uh, we have already... Um, confessed sin and heard forgiveness uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would please, uh, please illuminate uh, the eyes of our hearts. Um, Please help us to see uh, what it is that you are saying to us uh, in this passage. Help me uh, as I preach and help all of us as we hear, uh, even me, uh, as I hear 
the words that you have spoken uh, to your people. Um, Father, there are many souls in this room uh, who are troubled. There are many of us uh, who can look at events around the world or events in our own homes and say, this is not right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, and, 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 and a sense of despair uh, can set in um, when our eyes are on those things. Um, please, we ask, lift our eyes up. Lift our eyes up to, to, to see you. Um, lift our eyes up to see the light shining beyond the darkness. Um, Father, we pray uh, that you would give us the hope of the resurrection, uh, the resurrection that we celebrate every Sunday. Uh, even as we look at this passage, as Jesus is drawing near uh, to his death. Father, I pray for those souls who are troubled um, in this room, um, that they would be comforted, uh, that they would be comforted uh, by this word uh, that you have given us. Uh, so, Spirit, apart from your promises, um, this is all for naught. Uh, we are wholly dependent uh, on you, and we thank you that your promises and your commitment to deliver on them uh, is more sure, uh, more energetic, more um, uh, assured uh, than is our zeal and our desire um, to hear from you uh, or to meet you. Um, Father, I pray, uh, as I always do, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you have been with us since the beginning of last year, so think back to January 2021, when we began this series um, in the Gospel of John. And if you remember, we actually took two weeks to look at the first passage that we looked at. The first passage was John 1, 1 to 18. It was the prelude. Um, it is this um, just incredibly uh, dense, rich, evocative um, introduction uh, to this gospel, so much so um, that Bradley and I each preached one sermon on it uh, to get uh, more than one perspective on, on what was going on. Um, and we probably could have kept going from there. Uh, you could do an entire sermon series just on John 1, 1 to 18. Um, let me remind you of, of, of these words. So, um, the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And also verse 14 the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you kind of want to just stop. You kind of want to sit there and, and just bask in the wonder um, and just bask in the glory of it. Um, and you think, again, we could just spend weeks and weeks just unpacking that. But if we did that, uh, if we were just to unpack that and say, what do you make of this? What do you think this means? Um, I don't think any of us would arrive on the story uh, as it actually unfolded. 
I, I don't think that any of us um, would dare to imagine what it really means that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Most of us would want to tell a story where the darkness just doesn't touch the light at all. But that's not the story that we get. Um, as we draw near now uh, to Good Friday and to Easter uh, in our calendar, um, and as in the Gospel of John, um, we are now in the last week of Jesus' life. We are after the triumphal entry. Um, we are drawing near uh, to his betrayal, uh, to his death, his crucifixion, uh, to his burial, um, with his resurrection uh, soon to follow, uh, and, and we will celebrate that. Um, but we're beginning to see the weight. We're beginning to see just what it meant for the light to shine in the darkness and the darkness to not be able to overcome it. We're beginning to see what we've seen repeated uh, throughout the gospel, uh, that when John talks about glory, when John says that we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, the main thing that he's talking about every time is the cross. The place where that glory is most clearly manifested um, is, is on the cross. Um, in some way, this is last week's sermon, part two. Bradley and I looked at this passage and we said we're we're still in this place that we don't want to be. Last week, um, Bradley pointed out um, that for Christians, it's not so much that our middle name is suffering, um, it's that our middle name is death. Um, that we are a people uh, who find hope and life on the other side of death because we are a people following our Savior. Um, and he did not go up to glory without first passing through death. Um, and as we said last week, and as we'll say again this week, that is not what we want. That is not how we want it to be. Um, this week, um, this image of light is back. Uh, as Jesus says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Um, this week we're going to see the reality of the darkness as it is falling. Um, we're going to see that the glory of God shines more brightly uh, against that darkness. Uh, and then lastly, I want us to look at what it means to walk in the light. Uh, what does that mean for us? The reality of the darkness comes through in the very first verse, first half verse of this passage. Uh, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And you just stop there for a minute and think about, think about what this means. Um, that word troubled there, uh, it is a violent word. Um, back when Jesus uh, came to Mary and Martha after Lazarus uh, had died, um, in, in chapter 11, verse 33, uh, it said, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Um, and we talked about how there's a, there's a, there's a violence to that. He is, he is stirred up. There is a rage um, to what he's experiencing. And it's, it's the same thing here. Um, this is not some calm, uh, you know, kind of pacifistic uh, troubled uh, that, that he's talking about. Um, Jesus is expressing the fact that death, the death that he's about to face, uh, is not natural 
Uh, it's not the way things are supposed to be. Um, death is a sign of God's judgment against sin. Um, in the garden, he told the man and woman, um, you can eat from any tree in this garden, don't eat from that one, because in the day that you eat of it, you'll die. Death comes as a sign of judgment uh, against, against sin. It's, it's not supposed to be here. Um, Jesus is experiencing that. He is drawing near uh, to something that isn't supposed to be in the world. And in his case, he is actually going to sit under the full weight um, of that judgment uh, that every sin, that my sin, that your sin deserves. Uh, he's going to sit under that. And his soul is troubled. I, I also don't want us to pass too quickly without noticing um, the, the importance of the fact that, that Jesus has a soul that can be troubled. Um, we sometimes pass too quickly over the full humanity of Christ. It's, it's sometimes easy to think of him because he is the word made flesh, uh, because he is God incarnate. It, it can be easy to think of him as one who is just qualitatively different than we are, who is equipped by virtue of being the Son of God, who is equipped to deal with pain and suffering and death um, in a way that, that we're not. Um, that's not what's going on here. Um, in, the, in, the, in the very early church, um, it took a while for people to, for Christians to be able to um, clearly explain what it means uh, that Jesus Christ is one person in two natures, um, that he is the union of, of God and man, that he is the word made flesh. Um, this past uh, Tuesday, uh, we had a dinner at Dan Allred's house, and we spent two hours talking about the Trinity. And two hours wasn't nearly enough uh, to scratch the surface um, in, in, in talking about the Trinity. I, I said, uh, in answer to questions, I said, I don't know. Uh, I lost count how many times. Um, and the same thing would be true uh, if we tried to unpack uh, the mysteries of, of Jesus, of, of who he is and how we understand him. Um, as the early church was figuring this out, as, as, the, as the controversy grew to what became the definitive statement um, that, uh, that was written down in about 451 uh, AD, um, there, were, uh, there were theologians in the church who were so zealous um, to protect the divine nature of Christ from, from anything that could impinge on it um, anything like suffering, any kind of change uh, whatsoever, um, that they held back from saying that Jesus was fully human. My favorite of this was a guy named Apollinarius. Um, my favorite just because it's, it's, it's kind of funny the way that he, that he put it. Um, the way he understood uh, the person of Jesus was he, he thought Jesus has a human body. You know, he looks in every way human. Um, but his soul, that's replaced by the divine nature. That's the way that they're, uh, that, they're, that they're united. It's like a body with the divine nature inserted into it. Or, as I like to think of it, you know, this is God wearing a man's suit, right? Um, there's, a, there's a Sufjan Stevens song uh, on, on one of his Christmas albums. Uh, the song is called Christmas Unicorn. Um, 
it's basically a, a song about how um, you know the Christmas the Christmas unicorn is sort of the personification of um, everything uh, secular about about Christmas. He even at one point says, "I'm a pagan holiday." Um, and there's this one point where the Christmas unicorn, who's singing, uh, it's a weird song, um, turns to the Christ child and he says, you may wear a human uniform, child, but I know you're just like me. Um, Jesus is not wearing a human uniform. Jesus is not we God wearing a human costume. It's not God in a man's suit. Um, Jesus is fully human. He has a human soul. He has a soul that can be troubled. And, and that is crucial to our salvation. Um, I like how one, one theologian puts it. He says, there's, there's no point in the life of Christ where the divine nature says to the human nature, stand aside, I'll take care of this. That never happens. There's no interruption to the fully human life of Jesus, because if it were, it wouldn't be a fully human life, and it wouldn't be any good to us. His suffering wouldn't be any good to us because it wouldn't give to us that high priest the Hebrews talks about that, that knows what it is to be human, that knows what it is to experience fear, uh, that knows what it is to experience loneliness, what it is to be troubled. And it wouldn't be any good for us for our salvation either. Because if he's not fully human, then his sacrifice doesn't pay for our human sins. Um, Hebrews actually says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. It's pretty astounding what he goes on to say. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? And it's possible. It's possible that he's not just asking that as a rhetorical question. Right? The way they've done the punctuation here uh, in, in, in the ESV that's in our Pew Bibles or, and in a lot of other English translations um, the punctuation makes it clear that he's just putting that out there as a rhetorical question, which he immediately rejects. But, you know, that punctuation's not in the original, and it is possible that that prayer is real, that he's actually saying in this minute, Father, save me from this hour, and then immediately turns and says, no, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. If that's what he's saying, that would be entirely consistent with the other Gospels, where in the garden... He says, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. It would be just like Jesus uh, to, to say that. What keeps him from finally asking for the cup to be taken, to be saved uh, from the cross, um, is that he knows that this is the purpose for which he has come. Everything has come down uh, to this. Bradley pointed this out last, last week. All through John, Jesus has been saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, it's not yet time. Now, the hour has come. This is why I'm here. 
He didn't primarily come to teach. He didn't primarily come to perform these amazing signs and miracles that we've been seeing. All of that is all subservient to the one reason that he came, to stand in our place, to go to the cross and die the death that we were meant to die. Um, that is why he's here. And what he makes clear is that going to the cross for us and glorifying his Father are not two separate things. They are one and the same. Uh, he is here to die for us. He is here to glorify the Father. Um, it's the same thing. And, and if you think about it, we pray together every week. Right at the, end of, at the end of the sermon, we always pray the prayer that he taught us how to pray. And the second thing that we say, we say, hallowed be your name, right? In other words, glorified. It means the same thing. Glorified be your name. May God, may your name be glorified. Um, you realize that but for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, um, if he had not taken the penalty, the judgment uh, for our sins, we would have no basis to pray that prayer. Um, because apart from his sacrifice for us, praying for God's name to be glorified would be to pray for our own destruction, to pray for the destruction of everything that stands opposed to him that hasn't been dealt with. It's, it's, it's because Jesus' death on the cross fully pays uh, for all our sins that we are able at all to pray the Lord's Prayer and to do so with hope, to do so with gratitude. Um, he made it possible uh, for us to pray the prayer uh, that, he, that he taught us. It says, Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is one of these amazing moments um, in the Gospels. Uh, I think there's only three. At Jesus' baptism, uh, at his transfiguration, and then here where we actually get a glimpse into a conversation among the persons of the Trinity, where we actually hear the Father and the Son speaking uh, to each other. Here he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Um, no one standing there, apparently, understands it. They all think that it's thunder, uh, possibly an angel uh, speaking. And yet Jesus says, this was for your sake. And at the very least, at the very least, we would say it's for our sake. Because whether he understood it in the moment or not, John, who's writing this, eventually does understand and writes this down. And, and we're the beneficiaries uh, to hear uh, God the Father stating this purpose. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Um, this is revealing to us the heart of the Father, his determination, his absolute commitment to glorify his name, that, that he would be glorified. And as, as I said, let me repeat again, God being glorified and Jesus dying for us are not two different things. Um, this is how God has chosen to be glorified, um, is by giving his son uh, to die for us. There's a spot in Ezekiel 36. Actually, if you know anything from the book of Ezekiel, this might be the part that you know where God promises to give his people new hearts 
um, to replace their hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. We actually sing a song um, based on this uh, pretty frequently, so we, so we know these words. Um, those words in Ezekiel are bookended before and after with God saying, listen, I am not doing this for your sake. I'm not doing this because of who you are. Um, frequently in the Old Testament, God says, you know, I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous, the most impressive people. Um, and here God says, I am not doing this for your sake. I'm doing this for the sake of my glory. I will give you a new heart. I will replace your heart of stone with heart of flesh for my own glory. Um, his commitment to that is sure. I want to stop there and ask, when I tell you that God saves us, that he is merciful to us, that he is gracious to us, not for our sake, but for his glory, how do you react to that? Does that offend you? At some point in all of our lives, it probably should. This, this is part of the offense of the gospel, um, that God does not save us because we are so lovable, uh, because we are so worth saving, because he looks at us and says, yep, good return on investment there. Um, the whole rest of our lives, pretty much every other sphere we operate in, um, we are constantly judged on our performance. Um, and so to be told in no uncertain terms, you don't measure up, but that's not the grounds on which I'm going to deal graciously with you. Um, that at some point should offend you. If it never has, you, you, you maybe haven't thought about this deeply enough. Um, because this is the point at which the gospel tells us that we are way worse than we think we are. We are way more sinful than we've ever dared uh, to believe. But equally, if this offends you at other points in your life, I want this to give you hope. I want this to be the grounds of your hope. Um, out in the world, if your performance just doesn't measure up, then it doesn't measure up, and you're out. All of us, if we are honest with ourselves, have to say at, at some times, and frankly, the more we come to know ourselves, the more we come to know God and his holiness, um, the more frequently we look at ourselves and we will say, there is nothing there that we could offer to God. There is nothing that we could contribute or add uh, to him. Uh, we are not a very good return on investment in and of ourselves. Um, and at that point, we're ready to have hope when we hear that God's commitment to save us is not grounded on our lovability. It's grounded on his commitment to his own glory. Um, remember what Isaiah 30 says? We've looked at this before. We, 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 we often read Isaiah 30, 15 that says, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Verse 18 is just as important. Isaiah 30, 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and he exalts himself to show mercy to you. It is to his glory. It makes him look better. It exalts him to be merciful to us. Um, 
And that is the ground of all of our hope. Um, I like the way Martin Luther put this. He said, you know, when you look at the way human beings love things, uh, the love of man is always drawn to what it finds most attractive. But the love of God creates beauty where it loves something. God makes beautiful what he loves. He doesn't love what he finds beautiful. He makes beautiful what he loves. It is his love for us. It is his grace towards us that is making us more and more in Christ's image, making us more and more beautiful. I want us to see before we leave this passage, uh, how the glory of the light shines even more brightly uh, in, this, in this darkness. Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Uh, and it says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is also clear that it's in this moment that the world is being judged. Um, I don't know if you remember when we first looked at this word judgment, uh, this, this particular word for judgment. Actually, it was, another, it was in another passage about light. Uh, 3.19, this is the judgment. He's speaking to Nicodemus here. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Um, and if you remember, we said this word judgment, it comes from the word from which we get the word crisis, right? So this, this, is, this is the kind of judgment which is a revealing point. It's a crisis that reveals what is true. It's the test that shows what has been true all along. Now is the judgment of the world, uh, and now is the ruler uh, of this world cast out. All of the powers, all the principalities. Um, it's really interesting to look at um, Jesus' crucifixion and to realize that every, every form of power, every form of government that humanity had come up with was, was represented, right? You had, you had the religious tribe represented. Um, you had the democratic people speaking their voice. And you had the imperial power, right? They were all there, and they all spoke in unison, crucify. And Jesus, by submitting himself to death, uh, because he is raised, judges all of those forms of power. He says none of these will have the last word. None of these will have the day. They're all being shown uh, for their, their weakness uh, and their ultimate, um, their ultimate impotence. Um, maybe most importantly in this, in this section um, is the confusion of the crowd. Uh, they say, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, they're picking up on a lot here. This is actually kind of impressive. Um, on the one hand, uh, they're remembering that Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man. This is back in verse 23, that he did that. Um, and they're connecting that to the Messiah. 
they're also understanding when he says, I must be lifted up. Like, they're, they're getting what he means by this. They understand that he's talking about being lifted up in death. Um, and for them, on the one hand, there's an intellectual problem. Their law tells them that the Messiah is not supposed to die, that the Messiah is supposed to be eternal, it's supposed to be successful. So what on earth are you talking about? But I think we can tell from the way Jesus responds to them in the last two verses of this passage um, that he knows that the real question that they're asking and probably the real question that we're asking isn't an intellectual one. It's not help us solve this puzzle. The real question is, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're the Messiah, if you're the one that we've been waiting for, and you are heading towards death, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for us? If that's where the one I've been waiting for, the one I'm hoping for, is going, does that mean that I'm going there too? And of course, Jesus has said, he said last week in our, in our, in our passage, um, that if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. Jesus' response to this is to say, the light is among you for a little while longer, so walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And, and, and notice what's... What's not in question, the fact that darkness is falling, that's not in question. What's in question is, will the darkness overtake you? Will the darkness overwhelm you? Will it overcome you? Um, what does it mean to walk with him, uh, to abide in him? the light who shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not uh, over, overcome it. This is where we're going over the next several weeks, what it means to follow uh, this, this Jesus towards the cross, um, what it means to understand uh, that for Christians, for us, um, we are a people acquainted with death because our Savior did not go up to glory without passing through death. But we are also a people because that's our Savior, because of the resurrection. We are also a people over whom death can hold no final power. We are a people for whom there is ultimate hope. Um, not because we are too strong uh, to be overcome by death, but because we know one who is. Because we know one who is declared by his resurrection from the dead to be the Son of God in power. And Paul tells us that he's the first of many. That's just the beginning. He's the first fruits. Um, It's very evident from this passage and where we're going next week and where we're going in the coming weeks that maybe nobody 
standing here listening to Jesus understands what he's talking about, uh, including the disciples, right? Because when push comes to shove, when the darkness falls, they're scattered. They're scattered everywhere. So there's not a single person that perfectly heeds um, what Jesus is saying. And that is why it's so important that Jesus pursues them even after that failure, even after his death and his, and his resurrection. We won't get there this year, um, but um, we've invited you multiple times, you know, sit down some afternoon and just read the entire Gospel of John. Maybe do it a few times. Um, invite people to read it with you. Um, the epilogue is so crucial. Um, you know, John gets to the end of chapter 20, and he seems to be summing things up. He says, I've, I've written these things that you might believe, and in believing, have eternal life. Right? And that, that really feels like the end of the gospel, but he's got one more chapter. He's got one more story to tell you. And it's the story of Peter. It's the story of the one who was scattered. It's the story of the one who betrayed Jesus. Um, it's the story of how Jesus went to him and pursued him and made him breakfast on that beach, uh, and restored him back. That's another thing that I want us to be a deep source of hope for us. Um, if, if all you hear in this sermon or in any of our preaching is that you need to be ready to die, then you walk out of here with this burden I remember last week uh, the question, uh, and it's such a good question, do you believe that you're called to love dying things? Do we believe that? And I can tell you for me, my answer to that is yes, I believe that, but no, I don't want it. I don't want to love dying things. Um, and if it's all on me, if it's all on you to love dying things, um, then it's just going to lead us to discouragement uh, and, and despair. Unless we see Jesus pursuing us, no matter how many times we fail, we see him pursuing us. We see him, the light, still shining in the midst of the darkness, still being the one that, couldn't over, that, that the darkness could not overcome. Um, he pursues us in his word, which is why we're here, and he pursues us at this table. This table is a place, this ordinary bread, ordinary wine, ordinary means of grace that God gives to us. This table is for those of us that know that we need to be pursued. Let's pray before we go there.